Good morning, everyone. It's a very great pleasure and a great privilege to be invited to share today's discussion. And I want to echo what's been said in tribute to Liz for all that she's done over these years to make Oxpeace a reality. I remember when it was simply a, a twinkle in your eye some 20 years ago, and it's wonderful to see how much has happened since. I'm offered to introduce the subject by looking at issues around the character and distinctiveness of Russian nationalism, and specifically Russian Christian nationalism, as a historical phenomenon and a current reality. And I want to link this with some global perspectives as well, which I hope will be evident in due course. And in good traditional fashion, I'm breaking down my presentation into three portions. It's in the 15th century that the idea first emerges that the Grand Principality of Moscow is the inheritor of the Byzantine Empire. The fall of the city of Constantinople in 1453 generated a great deal of intellectual upheaval in the Eastern Christian world. And at least one Russian intellectual of the era took the opportunity of saying that it was quite clear that since the first Rome and the second Rome had fallen, Moscow, the major orthodox principality left standing in Eastern Europe, was the third Rome, and he said famously, a fourth there will never be. In spite of a short-lived and probably doomed attempt in the 1920s and early 1930s to suggest that Bucharest might be the fourth Rome after the fall of Moscow, I think we can stick with the Philosophic analysis in the 15th century. The Third Rome. Moscow and the Rus principalities associated with Moscow are recast as the successor state, not only of the Byzantine Empire, but of the Roman Empire, which of course is technically what the Byzantine Empire always was. That means to say that the forms of authority encoded and embodied in the Principality of Moscow had about them the same kind of sacral finality and authority that belonged to the figure of the emperor in Constantinople. The ruler was anointed, equipped by God for absolute authority, autocratic authority over the people. And the coronation ritual exemplified this in various ways. And various aspects of court protocol and thinking about both church and state reflected this up till the time of Peter the Great and in some ways beyond that. But in that relatively brief period from, let's say, 1500 to 1700, Moscow reinvented itself as an empire a Christian empire, whose ruler was called Caesar, Tsar. During post-Petrine period in Russia, after the reforms and the westernization of Peter the Great, that particular legacy, for obvious reasons, mattered a great deal less. I don't imagine that Catherine the Great spent a great deal of time reflecting on her inheritance from Byzantium, and although autocracy was very definitely part of the political map in those centuries 
the particular forms of Christian autocracy reflected in 15th and 16th century literature don't seem to appear so much. But what brought this back to life in the 19th century, apart from one particular strand which I'll come to in a moment, what brought it most practically back to life was, of course, the crisis in the Balkans in the later 19th century. The activities of the Ottoman Empire against the southern Slavs, as we know from the novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and many other sources, revived the sense that the orthodox state was, if you like, de facto, perhaps indeed de jure, the protector of orthodox minorities elsewhere. Son Nicholas I, earlier in the 19th century, had, you might say, shifted the, the tone, the feel of Russian autocracy back a little bit further towards the Byzantine model. It's in his reign that the formula of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality became sort of governing features of Russian identity. But the Balkan Wars, the persecution of the orthodox minorities, especially in Bulgaria, but also to some extent in Serbia, these became a kind of rationale for Russian political activism in the area. And those of you who remember Anna Karenina will recall the struggles of conscience which Levin goes through towards the end of that novel about how far he should be involved in the Balkan conflicts. So that's a first point to bear in mind. There is a history of Russian self-mythologizing in terms of the Christian Orthodox Empire, which at a particular moment in history transforms itself into a duty and an authority to intervene as protector of integral orthodoxy elsewhere, orthodox minorities in particular, against anti-Christian violence. That has certainly been one of the elements in the remarkable, comprehensive revival of Russian self-mythologizing that we've seen in the last decade or two decades in Putin's Russia. I think it's quite important to recognize that its roots are not simply, not simply the opportunism of a contemporary dictator, but key into a very deep strand in Russian self-imaging, which has to do with that sense of the Third Rome and its protective authority. That notion that the emperor has a sort of universal duty to protect Christian communities <coughs> is deep-rooted in 5th and 6th century thinking about the role of the Roman Empire in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. But as we've seen, this particular application of it gives a special edge to Russian exception. Secondly, though, I want to turn to that other 19th century phenomenon which feeds into this in a rather paradoxical way. And that is what happens in the middle of the 19th century with the Slavophile movement in Russia. That is the recovery of a sense of specifically Slavic identity 
a highly distinctive cultural and religious ethos which is supposed to reside in the Slavic nations. Rather in contrast to the emphasis on autocracy in the Third Rome tradition, the odd thing is that many of the Slavophils were surprisingly egalitarian and rather suspect to the autocratic state at the time. The ideal human community for the Slavophils was the village commune, in which an egalitarian, participatory, communal identity was reflected in ways of decision-making, land ownership, and so forth. And this peasant commune ideal was itself deeply linked in for Slavophil writers with a theological rationale. Christian communal identity was the opposite of individual self-assertion. The identity of the peasant commune was all about understanding your own destiny, calling, and capacity in terms of the community you were part of. And there's a fundamental appeal to nonviolence and cooperation as essentially bound up with that Slavic communal identity. And of course, as many of you will know, the great word sobornost is coined by some of these Slavophil thinkers. Conciliarity is a rather bad English translation to describe the mutual communal ideals that were thought of as intrinsic, not just to Russian, but to Slavic identity. A slightly unkind and slightly more objective observer might well say, you're simply describing pre-modern forms of communal awareness. But at the time, it suited Slavophil publicists and thinkers to underline this particular aspect, partly as a protest against what they saw as the westernizing autocratic tendencies represented by Peter the Great in his legacy. The point was to get back behind Peter the Great and even behind Ivan the Terrible to another kind of Slavonic political ideal, corporatist, nonviolent, and so forth. Now, this is the curious and rather ambivalent element, which helps to produce some aspects of our present crisis. Built into this Slavophil sense of identity was also an ideal of non-resistance as somehow characteristic of Slavic political psychology. Some Slavophil apologists noted that the first canonized saints in Russia after Vladimir in the um, 11th century were Vladimir's sons, Boris and Khrib, who were killed by their brother in a dynastic war and refused to resist their brother's violence. It's as if from the beginning, Russian sanctity is non-violent. And that feeds in to another strand of self-mythologizing which is that of Russia as the victim nation, the martyr people. The not always very edifying, somewhat Machiavellian negotiations of the late medieval Muscovite princes in relation to their Tatar overlords were reinterpreted as an exercise in Christian humility. Instead of fighting the Tatars, the Muscovite princes collaborated 
to protect their own people. Um, it's, uh, say, an edifying version of a not always very edifying history. But it's part of that same mythology. Russia is a martyr people, overrun by the Tatar hordes in the 13th century, kept in subjection until the 15th century. The ideal forms of political authority in that period were not heroic resistance, but patient suffering and the acceptance of compromise for the sake of the common good. <coughs> Some Southerfield writers go back yet further to the mythology of the beginnings of the Russian state and the alleged invitation from Slavonic tribes around the Dnieper to the Viking Rurik to come and rule over us. Humility, you see. Authority is something which has to be accepted, worked with, endured patiently. And there's the irony, you might say, in the Slavophile view. On the one hand, the ideal form of human society is egalitarian and cooperative. On the other, as a matter of fact, most forms of available human authority are dominant and coercive. And the best thing you can do is to collaborate and to accept with humility. So part of that Slavophil legacy is the picture of Russia as constantly, patiently suffering through the aggression of others. The Tatars, then the Germans and the Poles, in the time of troubles at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century, Napoleon, in the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon didn't realize it, but he did wonders for Russian self-perception and Russian self-mythologizing by attacking Moscow. It was a perfect exemplification of the Slavophil narrative. Here, yet again, was rationalist, individualist, aggressive Westernism assaulting the very citadel of sacred community, Holy Mother Moscow, representing the Slavic humble Christian cooperative reality. That goes with, in some forms of Slavophil writing, a still further turn of the screw, in which, strangely, Russia is feminized. If you look at the prison writings of, say, Andrei Sinyavsky, one of the great writers of the Gulag in the late 20th century, otherwise Abram Tiaritz, that was the name he wrote under, Sinyavsky more than once picks up this idea of Russia is, in contrast to the Western nations, Russia is feminine, meaning Russia is passive. And Sinyavsky, like others, says that that's, of course, a mixed blessing. It means that we are strangers to aggressive imperialism. The eyebrows are raised a little at this point, because our corporate ethnic ethos is feminine, receptive, passive, humble, enduring. So, those first two elements, we see both a deep tension and a rather dangerous chemical reaction. On the one hand, Russia is the orthodox state, called upon as part of its imperial identity to protect others. On the other, Russia is a victim state, Russia is the Christian martyr people who bear the cross in the world. Dostoevsky 
Putting those together can, of course, mean that the exercise of coercive force by the Russian state is always and only a reaction to its victimage, the fact that it has been oppressed, attacked by others. By definition, Russian violence is responsive, not aggressive, defensive, not imperialistic. I think having sketched very broadly, and you know, Russian historians in the audience will have to forgive me for the crudity of all this, having sketched that, you may see some of the components that weave themselves into the ideology around the Ukraine aggression. On the one hand, the Christian Russian state is indeed called, so the Patriarch of Moscow repeatedly tells us, to defend its faithful who are under threat elsewhere. We've seen in the last um, decade and more how that's worked out in ecclesiastical terms, the way in which the Patriarchate of Moscow has repeatedly and consistently attempted to set up what you might call safe orthodox jurisdictions in other countries, safe places for Russians to maintain their <coughs> Russian orthodoxy, even in orthodox countries and orthodox environments. But here we see how this translates into a very political and geopolitical agenda also. The condition of Ukraine can be represented, and has been represented, as, so to speak, the covert takeover of an orthodox country by non-orthodox and anti-orthodox and anti-Christian elements. At its most extreme, this of course veers off into globalist conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic fantasies, and all the rest of it, all those very sadly familiar tropes in the Russian imagination. Slightly more specifically, it means that Ukraine in attempting to reconstitute itself as something like a Western democracy, has quite clearly been co-opted at best, captured at worst, by a wholly alien theology and philosophy. Ukrainians may not know it, but they are actually victims of a new form of Ottoman oppression. The great Antichrist has taken over. So the protective responsibility of the Third Rome is revitalized in that context. And the other side of that is, of course, when an immediate neighbor, Ukraine, is co-opted by violently anti-Russian, anti-Christian forces, when it talks about entering NATO, when its cultural climate more and more comes to resemble that of the godless West, it's quite clear that Russia is under threat. The wholly passive, non-violent people of Russia are yet again being attacked by Vikings, Tartars, Teutonic Knights, Poles, Napoleon, Napoleonic troops, um, Hitlerian troops, you name it. But this is part of that narrative, yet again. Russia, the martyr nation, is under threat. And therefore, sighing deeply, heartbrokenly, Russia is forced to take up arms in its own defense. 
That's what I mean by saying that the tensions between those two bits of Russian mythology form a very particular and, and rather explosive chemistry when they're brought together, not for the first time. And also not for the first time, the memory of Stalin's mythologizing of the great patriotic war in the early 1940s is resurgent in this context. Yet again, a massive military presence has to be activated in order to resist the martyrdom that threatens. So much for the Russian tradition, but in the last few minutes left, I want to add the dimension that gives this a particularly, perhaps puzzling is the wrong word, but certainly um, provoking dimension in the context of contemporary geopolitics. I'm looking at it partly through the lens of the Christian and ecclesiastical discourse that has been around, but that has clearly been co-opted very effectively by Putin and his colleagues. And that is the international resistance to modernizing, liberalizing, equalizing trends in social mores. We talk glibly in this country about inclusivity, and we mean by that code is rights not only for women, but for sexual minorities and the like. Which is why, of course, for Patriarch Kirill in Moscow, gay pride marches in Kiev are the most visible and offensive sign possible of assault on the sacred society, the holy community. A sign that Ukraine has been captured and must be released. But the configuration of this in terms of a particular set of political and social issues around gender and sexuality is an entirely modern and paradoxically largely Western phenomenon. This is why you see the initially rather puzzling sympathy and resonance between the language used in Moscow and the religious right in the United States of America and why there are many on the religious right in the United States who are strongly, not violently opposed to any action in defense of Ukraine. Because Moscow is, in this instance, fighting for their cause and their corner. And here again, to multiply the paradoxes, the distinctive exceptionalist view of Russian Christian identity has, in this particular, been reinforced and deepened is perhaps the wrong word, but certainly intensified and broadened perhaps by a very particular Western set of culture wars, agenda items. And that's one element in the whole picture which I think has not yet received quite the attention it deserves in our thinking about how this fits into a global pattern of self-understanding and conflict. It's part, of course, of that very broad crisis of participatory democracy which geopolitics currently faces. Part of the reactive and, once again, modern, profoundly modern sense of pushing back against 
what's regarded as Bollinger's conspiratorial agenda for the dissolution of traditional social forms. It's given particular diffusion and particular intensity in the social media world in the United States and elsewhere. It's borrowed for similar purposes by parts of the Islamic world in defense of Islamist agendas. And here it is once again being borrowed by the Russian Patriarchate and the Russian state to make sense of its action in Ukraine. Now, a great deal could be said about all of that, about, as I said, the geopolitical location of both Putin's style of government and this particular military action. But I hope in what I've said so far, I've given you some sense of how, left to itself, you already have a quite explosive mixture within the Russian mythological psyche. And I should say I'm using mythological in a neutral sense here. I'm not just using it as a swear word. This is about the, the, the self-imagining of communities, the imaginaire, as the French would say, of communities. You already have that explosive mixture. Add to that the international culture wars dimension and the crisis of democratic confidence. And you have, I think, something of the mindset which can narrate the invasion of Ukraine, the butchery of the innocent, the attempt to crush a legitimately elected government. You can narrate that in terms of self-defense, protection of minorities, and the defense of traditional, durable social forms against those sinister agencies which seek to dissolve them in favor of unaccountable um, absolutist secularism. It's quite a good story. And while I guess most of us in this hall today would not regard it as a story we would very much want to sign up to, it is, I think, quite important that we put a little bit of imaginative energy into understanding why it feels like a good story to some people, to large numbers of the citizens of the Russian Federation, to a good many in the, in the United States. And we might also give a bit of attention to some of the lessons that might be learned from how communities mythologize themselves. The risks of a victim narrative, the risks of a global protector narrative. Because of course those are not confined to Russia, are they? It's quite important to bear those in mind also as part of the wider discussion about peace and its enemies, which this meeting and this organization <coughs> seek to address. Thank you very much for listening.